the rising of the kings, a practical exposition on 1st and 2nd Samuel. This lesson today is on 1st Samuel 15, King Saul's Disobedience and Demise by Paul Bucknell. This has been presented at Oakland International Fellowship and produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net, releasing God's truth to a new generation. Did you ever wonder how a believer can go astray and do those awful things? It starts by a little compromise in one's life. Let's look at this passage now and see how this develops. It's interesting on the bulletin, it's uh, Samuel's rebuke to Paul. I find that this is going to be a real interesting lesson. There must be some point of conviction God has for me. We'll be continuing through the series on the rising of the kings through 1 Samuel. And today we'll be looking at one chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't know how you think about Christian life and living. We talked earlier in the last in the message about utopia type of thinking, you know, what the church is like in its ideal. Well, to, this lesson is more as an individual Christian. Uh, how do you think about the Christian life? Is it once they become a believer, they pop up to this high plateau and there they stay forever? Well, it's actually not quite that way. If we are honest with ourselves, or even if we simply look at a verse like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, we find that there's no way that we can, as a believer, just come to know him. We just bounce up to that perfect state. We never need to deal with sin or anything of that nature. In fact, when we look at the seven churches in Revelation in, in chapters 2 and 3, we find that there's rebukes of churches and of individuals, even in the passage we were just looking at in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, if, if you assume that they were believers. I believe that a lot of these passages are in the scriptures to help us to be able to better respond to God and how he's working in our life. We can easily misunderstand God his intentions in our life. We were just singing that song, he's altogether lovely, altogether wonderful, altogether worthy. I might have that in the wrong order. He is all that, all the time. He never changes in his constant love toward us. But when we're going through difficult times, we sometimes don't feel that or perhaps don't even believe that. I think in 1 Samuel 15, it really helps us to get a whole picture about how a person can crumble from the inside out. Now, we'll see more evidences of that outward crumbling later on, but we won't really find that too much here in this chapter. It's more the inward problem that is being revealed. We're going to start with a word of prayer, and then I have what we call here a soul test. Just two quick questions each of you hopefully can respond on. Each of you hopefully have a handout. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to grow in your presence. We are like a tree, Lord, that depends on the water and the sun. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to thrive, each one of us to thrive in your presence, Lord. You want that for all of us. We pray that you might help the evil one not to steal any truth from us that would hold us back from trusting you and growing as you would want us to. Now bless us during this time. Lord, protect and shield our conversation that everything that we learn be able to uh, be able to bring glory to your great name. In Christ we pray. Amen. So take your handouts and you'll notice they're a little star. And there's two questions. Each of the questions have four possible answers. You are just to choose one. You just choose one. 
and it's just trying to help you understand maybe where you're at in that life. Because instead of just either a regular plane of Christian constant growth, often our Christian lives are kind of bouncy, if you would look like at a graph. We go up and down at times, sometimes more radically than at other times. The first question is how close or far you are away from the Lord. And this is just your, your own perception, self-perception. You don't have to fill in anybody else's. But question one is rather distant. Number three, not too close. Five, lukewarm. Seven, eagerly growing. Uh, lukewarm would be better described as, you know, you're trying, but you're not really that close, not that interested in the Lord. Number three is it doesn't really matter too much whether you're that close or not. Okay, so just check off one if you would. Number two, it says, do you compromise what God expects of you? Those things, what does God expect in your life? Is there any sense of compromise for you? There's on one side you have, I don't care what I do, so you might mark that. The third one is the compromise. It's, yeah, you make compromises, but it's only on small things. It's no big deal to you. And number five, it says, I try not to compromise. And then on seven, it says, I don't compromise. But if I do, I turn from it right away. All right, so did you all answer that? We'll have other discussion questions, but that's something just for you to start thinking about, well, where am I in my own life? Because as we think about King Saul, we're going to be thinking about what he was going through in his own life. Now let's continue on and read the first three verses of 1 Samuel chapter 15. He says, Then Samuel said to Saul that Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way when he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, if we want to understand a little bit more of the Amaleks, uh, they have been around a long time. They are at the southern part of Judah, and like even or where Simeon would be if Simeon was there. There's a little map there. You can see it's on the bottom left. So they were pretty adjacent to the country of Israel. But notice what it does say here. It says in verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what it did to Israel when they came out from Egypt. Now, most of you probably know this story. Do you remember that time that Moses had to hold his hands up? As long as he held his hands up, they would win. That's the battle. When Israel was coming out of Egypt, all the other nations seemed to fear God. It was the uh, Amalekites that did not seem to have this fear. They went up and attacked Israel. When we think of Rahab, when she went to uh, Jericho, and they, oh, no, we heard what happened. The mighty God was with you, and so they had total fear. But in this case, we find, no, there was that sense of Amalekites were just strong, stubborn. Let's get them. Let's hit them hard. And because of that, God said at that point, actually in the scriptures itself, he says, I'm going to bring judgment upon Amalekites, and I'm going to end their history. Now, some of you might think, wow, you know, that's, that's, this is such a harsh judgment. You know, wipe out everybody. Wipe out even the animals. Some of people pay attention more to the animals nowadays. But uh, you, know, you wipe out all the animals, the, including the pigs. And you wipe out the, uh, the people, including the children, the women. It was a time for the end of the Amalekites. Very interesting, though. This is very similar to what 
God had in perspective to the Amorites. For the Amorites, God says, they're ready for judgment, but I'm going to wait another 400 years when Israel comes out in the land of Canaan, and then I'm going to bring judgment on Canaan. It was God saying, 400 years, I'll give them an opportunity to repent. Malachites too. This is 500 years that they had to repent. But God, they didn't repent. They were prideful. They were stubborn. And God said, well, that's the end for that nation. And so God, as a great judge of the world, he says, this nation, this is the time. It's, it's come to its full sense of judgment. I've given them time, plenty of time to repent, but they haven't. And so we bring judgment. Some people say, well, how come God doesn't forgive this long-lasting grudge? Jesus says, right, forgive or you won't be forgiven. But God doesn't forgive. Well, you see, he has a job of judge. Okay, that's his overarching rule that he has to bring about judgment upon the earth. You want justice? Well, this is part of justice where God makes everything right. But he also, in that other sense, within that umbrella of judgment, God brings in grace wherein he gives us the opportunity, love, to care, to bring forgiveness to people, to help them to, in our case, to find Jesus so that they can find forgiveness from God's great wrath. So there is that overarching wrath, and yet God has provided a window by which his love comes in, searches people out to have them escape from that judgment, much like Rahab escaped the judgment of Jericho. Uh, it's the way God works. His justice is something we can't change. That, that's something that's there, something that will be, and something that should be. It's good. Our hope is that more people will come to find his grace during this time. So let me go on because there's a, there's a lot of different things we can discuss in this passage. Now, this is an opportunity and temptation for King Saul. He brought his armies in and he went to battle. The instructions were very clear, precise, and what he was going to do. But I want to go on to the next section and see how he responded to this. Remember, every time God gives us command, it's an opportunity, right? We can either obey him or disobey him. And that's where it's an opportunity, yet it's also a temptation. Well, what if I don't obey him? And you're contemplating that. So this is the way we need to look at the different things that God puts before us every day of our lives. Our conversation, I'm going home, you know, how am I going to talk to my spouse? Am I going to get angry like last night? This is an opportunity or temptation, you know, and so we need to understand that and be able to look to God for grace to be able to respond properly. Now in verse 4 to 9, let's look at these verses and we can begin discussing uh, the text a little bit more. He says, Saul numbered the people and numbered them in Helam, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to shore, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag and the king of Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now from verses 4 to 8, we find that 
Saul was really doing well. He amazingly did many good things. First of all, he did respond. He, he gathered the whole army. He mobilized them to fight. Second of all, he went and just as he was attacking the Amalekites, he holds the forces back and says, hold on, Kenites, come on out. You know, you have surprise and speed are the two greatest advantages in an attacking army. These he both forsakes in that sense. And being sensitive to God, he asked the Kenites, come on out, guys. And thirdly, when he fights the Amalekites, he does a terrific job. He goes, if, if you know anything about the geography, all the way across that wilderness, all under in, in the Paran, the Sinai Peninsula. He crosses all of that, all the way to the edge of Egypt, where the wilderness of Shur was. That the word Shur actually means wall. It's like a place where there's a, a mountain, a wall, a mountain there that um, gives that its name. All the way toward Egypt. I mean, he went a long ways destroying the Malachites and defeated them. So in first four to eight, we, we first of all need to understand Saul did a lot of things. And this, and no doubt, boosted him up and encouraged him in, in seeing the great uh, victory that he had done for God. It's just verse nine, though. Did you notice that? It's a, they kind of hang that in there. And, and the commentary on it just begins to bring a different perspective of what Saul was doing. Let me, let me just ask you this question. As you look at verse, these verses, uh, you know, Saul was really happy with his attack. Do you think he should be so? You know, was this something that uh, he, he, he should be really happy with what happened? It was a great victory that day. It's interesting because in the next couple of verses, when we go looking on his way up to see Samuel, he rose early in the morning in verse 12. He said, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then and went and proceeded to Gagal, where Samuel was. I mean, this was a huge victory to wipe out one nation, enemy nation, according to the command of God. And so from the outward experiences and, and what people see, he did a great job. And he thought he did. But what was missing there? Well, he doesn't say he disobeyed God, but uh, it says it in an indirect way. He spared Agag and the best of the different livestock there. Everything worthless they destroyed. Everything good, special, they kept. So I, I don't know how you're thinking about that, but you know it, it's a good... Because on the basis of these kind of comments, the whole rest of the chapter will, will flow. And so we'll be able to see that. So this was the response uh, where Saul tolerated a little sin, but he did a lot of good. A lot of good. So let's go on, and I'd like to discuss more of these uh, next verses here as they get more into the interplay of what was happening in Saul's mind and in God's mind. Verses 10 to 15. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded to down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Verse 15. And Saul said, That brought them from the Malachites, for the people spare the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. So here we have two confrontations. First of all, the Lord 
comes and meets with Samuel. And the Lord shares his opinion about what happened. We see Saul first build a monument and then go meet up with Samuel, and then they have their own confrontation. Now, I'd like to break into your groups and to share, think a little bit. What thoughts do you have about Saul's claim there from verse 13? I have carried out the command of the Lord when he first met Samuel. I just want you to kind of reflect on it. Uh, Do you think he really believed that? Uh, Why or why not? So again, verse 13, Saul claimed, really seemed to be in in a real bold way. I carried out the command of the Lord. Do you think he believed it? Why or why not? Okay. Yeah, there seems to be some element there that he actually built a monument, right? Which kind of really portrays that he really was on a high. Things were going good. God led him to this battle. He won overwhelmingly. You know, he comes back and, you know, everybody likes this king. And probably this is where that old statement, you know, Saul has killed the thousands, you know, probably very true. He was a fantastic warrior and he did marvelously here and in other battles, it says in the earlier chapter there. So what we find in that sense, the way Saul perceived himself, it wasn't though so much in in light of what God particularly wanted, but in, in light of what he thought about it all. And so when you look from the outward, Saul was a great success. And this was a victory that would chalk one up, you know, before God. I tend to go to drift a little more. I, I, I also understand that division there. And, you know, but I, I kind of drift to the sense that he knew it, but he, he just kind of deluded himself, just focusing so much on how well they did. And he really thought it pleased God. He really thought it pleased God. Are there any questions or comments here? Okay, from verse 10, 11, excuse me. Why is it the Lord said to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king? Even though earlier, are you saying that um, actually the Lord did make him king? Can we, can we hold that to a little later? Because actually it even gets more complicated as we go on. That, that same sense of regretting, changing mind, planning on what God does. So that's, that's good. You're picking it up there. That's one of the things. No, no, that's good. You, you put a seed of question in our minds. And I, I, I like that. As we come closer to the end, actually the discussion is going to just broaden way out because more clues are thrown in the picture and we just begin to understand, wow. So I'm kind of rushing through the beginning part so I can have a little more time toward the end. Okay, uh, let's go on verse 16 to 23. I've entitled this The Excuse. He shifts blame. Uh, well, you can see, as, even as we're reading, I'll read out for you. You, you think, is, is he shifting blame or what? Then Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak. Now, I, by the way, I, I really think Saul thought that God was going to say something really good about what he did. And you know what I'm saying? He, oh, yeah. What did God say to you? I really think, you know, he thought that God was going to say lots of good things. Look at you wiped them all out. You obeyed me. I, I really think Saul was there. You know, you speak. I have an exclamation in my version there. Last verse there, last word in 16. And Samuel said, is it not true? And of course, he he doesn't answer that way. Is it not true, though, you were little in your own eyes? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Malachites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? 19. When then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
but rushed upon the spoil, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, choicest things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What makes this such a powerful set of verses is he first says, speak. And then when God speaks, he speaks in such a different perspective than Saul has. Where Saul says, I obeyed. Yes, some of the people did something wrong. But even there, we were going to offer up these to the Lord. In other words, to make a do. But the Lord comes and just totally rejects Saul and what he's done and his sense of offering to the Lord. The way I put it together is this, that Saul saw the people starting to collect animals and, and livestock and things, and he didn't stop them. He didn't stop them, but what he does as king, trying to respect the command to some degree, is that he just says, all right, why don't we take some of these animals and make a sacrifice? And so they were going to Gogal, they were going to Samuel, they were going to offer up. Now, whether they really were going to offer, probably, at least they brought some of the livestock, probably not all of it, and they were going to offer it up to him. So in Saul's mind, he perhaps was weak in leadership and not making sure the details what God said had been fulfilled. On the other hand, he's trying to kind of make a way over it and make it everything work out okay. I've, I've seen some people work in ministry that way, and, you know, and I, I can see, you know, I've seen that in the past. That, well, no, that's not what pleases God, though. And we see here God really coming at it and says, this is what I want, this is what I want, but you didn't do that. But Saul said, well, I did do this. In this part, we're trying to fix it this way. Now, the problem is that this is not what God wanted. And in the stinging um, reproach that he has in verses 22 to 23 here are well known. I mean, there's a song um, through these verses, right? But has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it's better to obey than sacrifice. It's better to obey than sacrifice. Now, let's think about what that means in this context. Sometimes we don't think about what it means in this context. So here he had a sacrifice that he was going to do to give to God to make everything right and what the people did wrong. It seems like a very good thing that Saul was planning even here at this point. Even from my kind of superficial perspective, I said, well, at least he's trying to make the best of it. But there, there was a problem there. But to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, Saul had an opportunity to obey. And this is what he should have done rather than just trying to fix things up. So this was like a schemer. It's much, much like Jacob. It's a schemer trying to, oh, let, let, let's just put it this way, and, and, and God will be pleased. Rather than really trying to get close to God and seeing what really does please him and live according to that standard. Now just think, 
say that, you know, the statistics are, they come out and say, well, most of the people that are born again Christians, they would say maybe, what, 60%, 70% do not, no longer believe that there's absolute truth. Okay. Take that perspective and throw it into this equation here, all right? Was Saul one who believed in absolute truth? Definitely not. I mean, it, it didn't matter to him so much. These are the things you can finesse. Uh, you, you can play with, you can bet on, you can move them around, shift them about, gain your position, and move forward. Now, I don't know what kind of lives you live. Sometimes we do something wrong. Say, say I, I, I did something wrong and offensive to my wife. I never come out in the end and apologize. I just maybe buy her some flowers. And I hope everything was back to normal. But there's still something broken there, you see. I'm trying to pretend everything's okay. I try to work on the other side so everything balances out. So life goes on, and it goes on. But not the way God wants it to go on. And so we have a perspective of Saul. We also have God's perspective here. Samuel is basically just a voice man, broken in heart over the whole situation. But he's basically just voicing what God is saying. Now, are there any questions? Just trying to repeat it. Maybe not everyone heard you, Victor. Man and God looks at things very differently, and, and God is willing to just get rid of all the animals, but Saul's saying, hey, you know, why not just grab a hold of them? The Malachites aren't going to use them anymore. We could. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a way we reason, isn't it? He doesn't have the problem with limited resources. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, let's go on. As we look at verse 24 to 31, we're going to start with one key verse in verse 24. And it says, Saul said to Samuel, although I, I have sinned. Okay, so after being strongly reproached here, he says, I've sinned. I am indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe. It tore. So Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Notice the two confessions here. Confessions typically are used in the sense of trying to bring reconciliation, full restoration of a relationship. It, it paves the way so that people can find harmony again. Saul's confessions did not do this. Why do you think Samuel was not willing to go back with Saul after he confessed his sin? Now we're looking at verse 24 to 26, 27. Samuel was not willing to go back with Saul. Okay, Samuel didn't want to give the impression that everything was okay. Why not? Wasn't everything okay? He confessed his sin. Okay, so it's, it's a quasi-confession from your perspective, yes? Oh, good, good. Thanks so, so much for sharing. You know, there, there is question and, and, and even debate on whether Saul was a genuine believer. I happen to be more on the side, yes, he was. You can be on the other side and you'll still be my brother and sister. That's no problem. Uh, 
because earlier uh, when he was first called, it says that God changed his heart. And if you go through the scriptures, you often see that this is what talks about a new heart, a changed heart. Heart from the Holy Spirit is one where the believer is there. But there is definitely elements of problem in his life. And God was continually dealing with him according to that. And, and we see this as his life goes on. One of the things that we find here is that when we're looking at life, and, and we can go on maybe to look at the last verses here, but and then, but we, yeah, I need to talk a little bit more about verse 24. Why did Saul do this? Why did he perceive God in such a way that it seems like God was distant? He was like there, but God was distant. He wasn't close to God anymore. At some point, and it seems like the, the problem in his life is, as he says in verse 24, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. There was a sense that he really did fear the people. That what they thought of him was really more important than what God thought of him. And therefore, he prioritized what they did and shaped what he did according to them. He feared perhaps that if he, as king, would say, don't bring those animals, or maybe he did, and the people started saying, well, what are you, who are you? Or maybe he kind of backed down. He wasn't built up in himself enough where he could just do what God wanted him to do. And instead, the peer pressure was too much for him. I think building each one of our lives, teens, even more important, but as we go on our life, are we there at a position in our life where we can say, I'm going to serve the Lord no matter what, you know, no matter what people think about me or say? Are you someone that does things because people say something or might say something? You know, so you gingerly walk around and trying to live that way. Or are you trying to focus on what God has for your life? Uh, there's a difference here. And whether the Spirit's leading you or your fear is leading you. And for Samuel, for Saul, it seemed to be this fear that trapped him in such a way where he became focused on his life. He never could escape that perspective of, of himself. So let me go on and just uh, read a little bit more here. 32 to 35. Then Samuel said to bring me Agag, the king of Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, no, this is the end. Uh, and he hacked them to pieces. <laughs> Verse, that was my paraphrase. Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted, there's that word again, regretted, that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord regretted he had made King Saul Israel. Now, I want to just look at these three points uh, in order, if we could. Verse 32 to 33. I'm under point F, by the way. Here he was disconnected from God. Saul did not obey. There was no real repentance. There were two confessions. The second one seemed better. There was some sense of measure of arrogance taken away. So Samuel was willing to go with him. Did you know Samuel changed his mind? He was willing to go after the second confession. It seems there be there, there was some point a breaking down of Saul, but not in the sense that he grieved over his sin. He probably really couldn't see it as sin in his life. He was just too focused on the victory, too caught up in the, the way things were going. And so as to he's disconnected, 
Samuel had to carry out the whole situation with Agag. There doesn't seem to be much sacrifice that really was wanted. Do you want the sheep still? You know, Saul's asking. I'm sure you want them. But after hearing this, even the sacrifice, the sheep, the people already have it. They're, they still, they took them out of greed. And so there's sin among the people of God because of Saul's neglect. There's, there's sin in Saul's life. And it just seems to be, okay, they go back together. And Saul is content just to have a mediocre life, just to get by. I'm king still. Things will work out. Uh, And and in any case, people still think really a lot about me. Because he did have that huge victory. We don't, don't forget the momentum, the applause that you'll go back and see when those people see him. They will have that. But he lost something with the Lord. And, and it's this point, you know, is, is part of our application of today. Is there something we kind of left out in our life? Maybe in, in somewhere along our life, in our studies, and with our parents, with our jobs. You know, we're just going along and we have compromised on something. And, and yet we, you know, we're still doing well. And God's just kind of letting us go. Some broken relationships and things, you know, and maybe not don't going well at church or something, but... You're just going on okay, but there's some undealt factors there. And if there is anything like that, go back and ask the Lord to deal with them, okay? Don't just let them hang as something undealt with in your life like Saul did. Because when we go back to Saul's life, we're going to see stage after stage, his, he was just sinking into darkness, just remember all the jealousies he had of David, you know, all that, <laughs> that whole thing there. Things aren't going to get better. What we hide will always be there because God's going to make see fit that it is there and that consequence will come. Why? Because even at this point, I believe God still wants to show grace. He's waiting for Saul to repent, really to repent, not just to be polite and say, yeah, well, I'll try to do better next time. But just say, I really did wrong, and I shouldn't have done that. What can I do? Uh, that, that breaking that we saw in David when he confesses sin, there was no breaking here. That, that's a good question. And what kind of repentance do you think God might be looking for? But the one that starts in the heart, one that is not just out on the outward like we see here with Saul in terms of his confession. It wasn't even that sacrifice. He says, I don't, I don't want those sacrifices. Do you realize that um, it uses this word in verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. Actually, divination is the same word for witchcraft. So what Saul was doing was treating God as a manipulative tool to get what he wanted. God was not God, Lord, okay? God was not king. To Saul, God was just someone there convenient to help him to get where he wants this is the way it seems like he was there. There was that rebellion in his heart. So he would not stoop down. And some people fuss, well, does Jesus need to be my Lord or just my Savior? He is your Lord, but is there rebellion in your heart? That's the real issue. And, yeah. Or lead the whole country in a national repentance. Army, we have done some wrong here. And what is most important to us is our relationship with God. He's the one that blesses us. We want to stay close to him. But without doing that, in there is a whole layer of sin that would pollute that nation as they went on. Let me go on to point two here. 
So that's just disconnected from God. There's also disconnected from God's people. Samuel's relationship with Saul went bad. Did you notice? They would not meet again till death. And this again also happens when there's that sin, that arrogance in our life. There's that hardening. If he didn't harden himself and repented, I think everything could have turned back. I mean, there was still might have been consequences like we see in David's case. And yet still things could have been turned back where there could be, God could be close to the people. God could be close to Saul. But no, there wasn't. And, and so Samuel represented prophetic office, the priest office. And so Saul would not be hearing from God. And as far as we see, that didn't matter with Saul. He did not go out and seek Samuel anymore. And that's, that was key. And lastly, verse 24, what was the importance to Saul? How did fear become part of this problem? The reason I mentioned this is, is earlier on, we talked. Uh, someone asked the question about regretting. Why is it that the Lord regretted that he was king? Well, Saul was disconnected from his life purpose in the sense that God made him king, made him to rule well, to bring the people close to him. Now, we find in verse 24 that there was that regretting, verse 25, 24. Uh, we find here at the last verse, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We also find that in verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who should change his mind. Let's not draw the conclusion that Saul could not have changed. As long as he's living, he could have changed, ideally. Maybe he would still lose his kingship. But if something really meant most for him, he would say, I'm willing to make those changes in my life, no matter what. What meant more to him, though? Isn't that the whole sign? Despite those things, he could go to before his people and the leaders and say, I have transgressed against the Lord. I am not fit to be king and approach it that way. That would be the bold, proper way, right? I, I know you're, you're smiling. I am, everyone else is smiling. Yeah, we say, no, that would be impossible among man. But it's what's needed, you see. And, and this is why when we take a small sin and we think it as small, it's not really small in God's sight. And when we think that the way we're going to make over those problems that might come about because we compromise in some area of our life actually will not solve the issue. What we're going to have to do is change the way we perceive God and ourselves and perhaps our position to come back to him. Now, let me just go on five signs of foolish decision-making here. Let me summarize them. It kind of summarizes the chapter here. Five signs of foolish decision-making. He focused on the present to the exclusion of the future. In other words, when he was fighting and leading the people, he was just looking at right then that present circumstance, how people would view him. He wasn't thinking of the long-term future, how God would perceive him or how he was leading the nation. He was leading them into sin, into defeat, spiritual defeat, even though it was, in one sense, a military victory. Secondly, he believed God was happy over his victory, even though he neglected other issues. He really believed God was happy. In other words, he was disillusioned with really who God was. Now, we could see that, what, how God thought, through the way he spoke to Samuel. Thirdly, he thought that good intention, sacrifice, offset small compromises. This is not enough. We have to change our hearts. Fourthly, he believed that God was just part of his life rather than being his life. Fifthly, he was convinced success was more important than right relationship with God and man. And it was this part that kind of prolonged the distance that Saul would have with God 
that the people of Israel would have with God, rather than leading the people back to God, he was just allowing the situation to grow. In other words, let's take it into our context. Here we are, church. Are we allowing just some sin to kind of hide in our midst? Even though we might grow bigger and bigger, might be great on the outward, but down underneath, we're somewhat materialistic, corrupt, whatever. Maybe have some of that greed or something. Are we willing to do that? Or is, is there a sense that, no, no, we really want things right with God, whether we're a big church or a small church. We're not just going to preach what everybody wants to hear. We're going to preach what God wants us to say. So that there's a difference there. And, and some application questions. Are you a people pleaser? Are you afraid of being rejected by others? Why? Is God going to change his sovereign will? I, I was going to talk more about that. You know, God is, is not one that does change. I mean, when you, when you understand him, he's from eternity, and he sees everything. He saw how King Saul would reject him, and yet he did still choose him. And I, I guess the question is this, well, why does he say he re regretted it even though he did it, okay? And then he regrets it at the end, and he says it again. I, I think the point is this. The people wanted the king, and God allowed them to have that king. God prepared Saul in such a way, brought him a mentor called Samuel to be right alongside of him. He spoke to Saul so Saul could hear all the ways that he wanted him to lead and do well. And yet Saul still turned his back on God after God helped him. In other words, God was hoping that Saul would fall, lead the people rightly. And even with the changes that, and, and if we remember that first chapter when God first called Saul, it was just a remarkable string of miracles that were happening, prophetic events, confirming God's hand in his life. And yet he turned aside from it. He forgot it. It no longer was important to him. Now that he was king, those things were immaterial to him. Well, that, that's what's so interesting about this passage. In the same passage, he says he does not change his mind, you know, and he doesn't repent. It's like, I know these, and, and this is, on, on the other hand, I think from this sense of regret, it, it's not that he's changed his mind, but he, he's a sense of real sadness in his heart. Let us say at least that God is, he says he doesn't lie. We know that he was, did regret this, that there was a real sense that God wanted the people of God to go forward and yet, again, they step back from going forward because of disobedience, because of sin. They compromised, and therefore the consequences would come upon them. And so that failure. For your future discussion, also think how this actually pictures of what we often call burnt out in your ministry or something, burnt out in your life. This is a great picture of what happens underneath. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We we really want your grace, Lord. I, I, maybe we're just saying that on our lips. But Lord, please let it not just be in our lips. Let it be deep in our hearts that the greatest thing in our life, Lord, is not the success, the outward success, but the inward confirmation that we are pleasing you. And Lord, we have a choice between us, not only in the big events of life, but each day, whether what means most to us is to please you or is to please man. You have given us a warning here, Lord. We know, Lord, that you want each of us to succeed in the real way, inward and outer. 
we pray, God, that you might help us all be those people of God that prize you more than any glamour that we might see in the world. Lord, if we have built a monument for ourselves, would you please be so gracious to help us to repent of it? And that you might lead us along, Lord, in a real relationship with you, sincere, true, and beautiful. Thank you for the warning. Thank you that you really want us to succeed. Jesus, we pray. This concludes our message on 1 Samuel 15, King Saul's Disobedience and Demise by Paul Bucknell. This has been produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Releasing God's truth to a new generation.